0: Hello. Welcome to this podcast called Finding Inspiration. It's a 20 or so minute weekly podcast where we interview someone with an amazing story. After the show, I know you're going to feel energized, invigorated, and inspired. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Welcome to Finding Inspiration. Daniel Levin, thank you for joining us. You're the son of a diplomat and you spent your early years in the Middle East and Africa. And I know you're a lawyer turned armed conflict negotiator, which I want to get into. In 2021, you published a book, your first one in the US, I believe, called Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. I finished the book, unbelievably suspenseful. I love the description. It broke my heart. I know the Wall Street Journal gave you very, very lovely reviews of your book. The book is the story about how you travel to the Middle East to find an American man named Paul. Can you first start with telling us what exactly does an armed conflict negotiator do? Just walk me through that.
1: Well, there are many ways to do it. I don't know that I'm a representative sample. I can tell you what I do. I run a European foundation that works in conflict zones and in failed states. And the Purpose of the foundation, it's a non-for-profit foundation. Its purpose is to develop next generation leaders, to identify young people in their 20s if possible, and take them out of the conflict zone and prepare them for future leadership, whether it's political leadership, social, political, economic, financial, and train them, give them the tools, whether they're going to be members of a government or an administration or members in parliament or journalists or doctors, lawyers, and provide them the training, vocational training sometimes, and network them with like-minded Individuals in other parts of the world to empower them essentially to then return when conflict ends to play a leadership position. And so that's the core activity of the foundation because we are active in so many conflict zones and because it requires us to network with the various power centers in the country, in the, whether it's the regime or opposition or many parties to a civil war, we are often approached. First of all, to help mediate the conflict when there is a ubiquitous will to end the conflict, when that's not the case, there's not much we can do. And also, we then get asked to help with missing people, missing Westerners.
0: First of all, I I understand what your foundation does from what you're telling us. You're preceding future governments in conflict zones, correct?
1: Yeah, governments, but not just. Also, members of civil society and religious leaders. It's really just people who are going to be responsible for rebuilding these countries.
0: Okay. What drives you to do this work? How did you get involved in doing this kind of work?
1: Oh, you know, I I wish I could tell you I had some great strategy when I grew up and and mapped it all out, but that would be, you know, a bold-faced lie. It was a random sequence of events. I was born in Israel, grew up in Africa, then in Europe, then in the U.S., then back in Switzerland, then in Israel, then in the U.S. So it was all over the place. And by the time I came to the U.S., last time was um, 30 years ago, and I worked as I did a postdoc. And I had an expertise actually in conflicts of law and conflicts between religious and secular law. And that led to a number of requests to help write new constitutions, first in Eastern Europe when the countries were emerging after the collapse of the Soviet Union in and Africa. And that in turn led a law firm that I'd started to get, receive requests to help with countries that rebu- were rebuilding for whatever reason, you know, shattered economically, politically and so on. And we developed in the mid-90s. This is the predecessor to the this foundation. We developed essentially a knowledge platform. So we our approach was the non-World Bank approach. We didn't just fly in experts. We essentially developed this knowledge platform, which we would license to these countries and say, here are the tools that your people need. We're happy to train them in the tool, but then we're going to disappear and you do your own development. You don't really need outsiders to tell you what to do. And that was at the core. That was in the 90s. And it got us also involved. I ended up getting involved in the mediation in the civil war in Angola, for example, between the government and the UNITA rebels of Savimbi. You know, that kind of intersection between development and conflict mediation that started in the mid to late 90s. And when the foundation then launched in 2008, it was launched on the basis of that knowledge platform that we had. So the idea that you're centering development around that next generation was always core to it. So I can't tell you, I always wanted to do this kind of work. I was simply a lawyer. And my first, I thought I'd stay in academia when I lived in Israel. And then, you know, it was very random or serendipitous that I got involved in this kind of work. But for the last 25, almost 30 years now, there's been some form of this development and conflict mediation that's been part of my life.
0: So I want to talk for a minute about the book that you wrote, Proof of Life. Take us kind of through a summary how it happened how you were contacted about this American man paul who disappeared in Syria so talk us through that how this case came to be for you
1: okay so just quickly background you know we our foundation was asked to help in a mediation in syria in the beginning of the civil war both by the regime and by the opposition this is pre-isis and islamist involvement pre-russian involvement that only started in September 2015 this was in 2012 and 13. The war was raging. Assad didn't look like he was going to hold on. And it was pre-Islamist invasion in late 14 out of Iraq and Jordan also. And so we were asked whether we could help mediate. And our answer was we would gladly do that. But under the condition that at the same time, the various sides would give us young people to help prepare for post-conflict. And we did that for a couple of years, but it became increasingly clear that the regime in particular wasn't interested in supporting this process, especially when they started to gain the upper hand with Iranian initial and then Russian involvement. So by 2014, we aborted our project. But what had happened by then, because we had strong contacts, you know, straight into Damascus and into the regime strongholds in the north, in Aleppo and in Raqqa in the northeast, we were then asked by Western governments and also families of missing people to see if we could help locate There were Americans, British, French people, Japanese journalists, aid workers and journalists in particular. And so it led to a number of those requests. And this book is about one such request. It actually came on the heels of a very disappointing experience, a very tragic one, where in 2014 in the summer, I had been asked to locate a missing Westerner. And 10 days before I was supposed to meet the hostage takers, he was executed, decapitated, actually. And so Uh. this book takes place in the fall of 14, which I remind you was a particularly brutal fall. It's where James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and others were caught and executed. And some of those executions put on social media and circulated. So it was particularly hard. And I did not really want to get involved. I got a pretty desperate call to go meet someone in Paris. I didn't know for what, when my travel schedule could be worked out. I met him for Paris for dinner and he broke down on a walk and told me that a son of a very dear friend who I later found out was actually a child who was very dear to him too, had gone missing in Syria and asked me to help. And so I I was very reluctant about it because i just had this pretty traumatic, I mean, it really felt like I was suffering from PTSD and didn't want to do it. But I I placed a call to a friend of mine, Khalid al-Mari, a Saudi who was very well networked in the region and asked whether he happened to know anything about this missing person. And he then sent me off on a trail It turned out that the young man, without giving away spoilers, but it turned out that the young man was captured by a gang that was primary gang trading, manufacturing and trading, captagon, this amphetamine. So it set me off on a trail from Istanbul to Beirut and Amman and then Dubai. I actually had to go twice into Syria, but I couldn't write that in the book because the Syrian officer who helped me and kept me safe in Syria asked me not to do it because otherwise his support would have basically been public and he would have faced repercussions. So uh, it was over these 20 days, essentially, that I'm on the trail of this drug gang that had captured this young man. And I have to chase the gang leader all the way through the Middle East and into the Gulf. And I finally catch up with him in Dubai when I find out what actually took place.
0: Yeah. And we don't want to give, as you say, a spoiler alert here on on exactly what happened, but In those 20 days where you were searching for this man, on the heels of what had happened in 2014 with James Foley and others, what were you most afraid of for yourself, emotionally and physically?
1: I don't know if I was physically afraid. There was uh, one night in Beirut in particular where I am with someone whom I identify as the sheikh in the book. But if someone reads the footnotes carefully of the book, they will find out who that is. It's a very powerful leader of a very hostile group to Israel. But I was under the protection of my friend Khalid at the time, so I trusted him completely. But I had to basically fly blind, which is I landed in Beirut with one of this militia man's deputies, and I had to surrender my passport and all my electronics. So I really was cut off in those hours where I was to meet this person who would then provide me the information I needed for my next stop to catch up with information on the missing person. And that was a, a weird sensation. It's also weird because... I obviously don't travel with my Israeli identity. I travel with a Swiss passport, which doesn't show place of birth. So, but I don't hide my Jewish identity. And it's my name makes it fairly obvious. Some say my looks make it obvious too. I'm leave it to others <laughs> to judge that. But, you know, that was a, a weird situation. I felt safe, in, but nonetheless, it was definitely, a, you know, anxiety provoking. And then, of course, once I catch up with the leader of the drug group in Dubai, who was an extremely violent person. I had to be careful how I did it and only meet him in public spots where I knew that I could get away if I needed to. I never would have met him alone. So I never really felt afraid, but that doesn't mean you don't feel some pressure, obviously, uh, along the way.
0: So when you're negotiating for a release of someone, I know you have a personal credo where you don't pay ransom. And I want to ask you, what kind of favors can you offer? What kind of power can you wield if it's not ransom money?
1: Yeah, I don't pay ransom as a matter of principle. I really do believe that if you pay ransom for kidnapping, you guarantee the next 10 people are going to get kidnapped. I know that in the real world, many people, even those who say and governments who say they don't pay, do pay. Sometimes they allow others to pay for them. But I personally don't get involved in those cases. The types of favors or chips, if you want to call them that, that you can collect and cash at the right moment are often indirect meaning that you can do something for a third party, which in turn can do something for the person holding the kidnapped person. And so to give you examples, which has happened quite frequently, actually, which is that a family member of a hostage taker needs medical treatment. And either because the whole family's blacklisted or because the logistics don't work out, if I can arrange for that medical treatment, whether it's in Cyprus or in Germany, for example, a mother of a hostage taker has breast cancer and, and needs some treatment like that. So arranging that kind of a treatment, doing it on a favor basis rather than cash exchanging or money exchanging hands, that's the type of favor that we talk. Once in a while, you get asked whether you can uh, get a person off an OFAC list, you know, the Office for Foreign Assets Control, meaning the, the U.S. embargoed list that's managed by the Treasury Department. So there are those kinds of favors, it's much harder to accomplish. It's easier to do it indirectly where you do something for another person and that person in turn can do it for the person or the group controlling the hostage.
0: So in the past, you've done these kinds of arrangements other than in this story with Paul.
1: That's correct. Virtually every kidnapping has something of this nature. And it's not just in the Middle East. There might be, there are situations in other parts of the world where Chinese intelligence might help in a hostage situation, not always with terrorist groups. Sometimes it's governments holding people illegally and detaining them. So you may interact with other intelligence agencies, intelligence groups, and they in turn may want something from you in return, some favor or some kind of advice. It can be anything of that nature. So there's always something of that. But obviously, you're very careful not to cross any lines. You can't provide any financial other consideration to any group that is declared a hostile group or terrorist group to the United States. So there's a very clear line. It's not just a fine line. It's a pretty bright line that you can't cross. And I'm very careful not to cross it. But in many, many cases, don't forget that the hardest part is not so much providing ransom for the release, the hardest part is obtaining reliable information. Also, what the name of the book is Proof of Life in many cases. And that is often more valuable even in economic and financial terms than the cost of the release of the kidnapped person. And getting reliable information is extremely hard because the moment a person is taken hostage the rumors start, you know, I can't even tell you in every single case, how many people swear to me that they actually saw the person who looked really gaunt and thin and had grown a beard and was begging for his life. All oh, the same kinds of rumors, the same patterns. I hear them every single time. And there are very few people who actually have reliable information. Once you identify who those people are in a country, whether it's in the Middle East or Southeast Asia or other places, You need to know that for you to rely on that information and keep it flowing, that's based on relationships that require nurturing and nurturing those relationships is through reliable advice, not betraying someone's confidence or doing favors that are of value to those people.
0: So in this war economy, in particular in Syria, how does this end to you or does it end to you when you look what's going on with with Assad now and, and Russia's influence, Iran, the Iran deal that's on the table with the U.S.? What do you think Syria and the Middle East look like in a few years? Can you make any guesses?
1: Gosh, we're such bad prognosticators. You know, I left Israel in 1992. The last election I voted for in Israel, my choice was between Meretz and the Labour Party. And neither are really, I mean, neither are, real. even though Labour is really in the government, it's not really in the government. You know, so had you told me that 30 years later, we'd be having a conversation with the political reality as it is right now? I would have told you you're nuts. You know, had you told me that Alik Sharon would evacuate Gaza in 2005, I would have said, you've got to be kidding. So we're such bad prognosticators, I'm not going to even venture a guess. Some of the answer to your question is in your question, because you asked me, if, you know, you started out by saying this war economy. I think that Syria will remain a devastated, failed state as long as the war economy is al- alive and well. There are parties around the regime, but not only around the regime. Who are becoming just stupendously wealthy in this economy. And it's not just trading drugs such as Captagon, it's trading anything. It's human trafficking. I've, I write in the book about two young girls who have been taken from a village in Syria and traded and in, sold into sex slavery in the Gulf. You know, there's a game with vaccines, with medicine, with clean water, with diesel, with everything. And those who control the war economy become wealthy that they, in ways that they can't even dream of in peacetime. So I think as long as the war economy is alive and well, uh, that will happen. Now there is a calculation of the other powers throughout the Middle East, Israel, Iran, others who, for whom the status quo in Syria is fairly welcome, right? Israel obviously does a calculation where having Assad beats the alternative, which might be an Islamist state. Uh, the Iranians need Assad there because the Iranians fantasize over having an actual physical access to the border with Israel, just like they're paranoid about Israel having access to the border with Iran through the Abraham Accords, right? Where you're in the United Arab Emirates, Ras al-Chema is one of the small emirates there. You can actually see the Iranian land across the Straits there. So that's the Iranian paranoia. Israel feels the same way about Iranian presence in the the Syrian border, plus Hezbollah, of course, in, in Lebanon. So I think that for too many parties, the status quo in Syria can last. Of course, the ones for whom it can't last because it's devastating are the ones no one asks, which is the Syrian people. It's a country that's been devastated. People have lost anything. I I personally don't think that in our lifetime, we're going to see anything, any semblance of a functional state in Syria. And we haven't even begun to address how destabilizing it's been on Jordan with the amount of Syrian refugees there in the north. You have refugee camps in the north of Jordan that look like actual cities that look so permanent. You have obviously a huge amount of uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon, which in itself is turning into a failed state. So it's so destabilizing. But if you ask me whether, you know, I have some kind of religious or faith-based hope that the Middle East is going to be look different 10 years from now, I know I don't.
0: And you mentioned the Abraham Accord, which is important to talk about in 2022. What does that look like if the U.S. signs a deal with Iran? What happens with Saudi Arabia? What happens with The UAE. How does that work out in your mind?
1: I think it's a mistake to look at all the Gulf states as a monolith. I know the states pretty well. I know the crown princes both in the UAE and in Saudi Arabia, MBs and MBZ. I think that the UAE has immediate proximity to Iran and needs to manage that relationship. So while it pushes the US into a more hostile position with Iran, behind the scenes it has its own. Uh, relationships that it entertains. One of the crown prince's brother, Sheikh Tahnun bin Zayed, has gone to Tehran many, many times now. So one of the em- senior intelligence emissaries called Ali Al-Shemzi, who's also responsible for the relationship with Syria, has gone to Tehran many times. So I think that there is a an understanding that they live in a dangerous part of the world and they're going to have to manage that relationship. And the U.S. today is very different from the U.S. of 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Now, Saudi Arabia is slightly different and has been a little more reluctant to join the Abraham Accord in a full-throated way. One of the reasons is that the king, King Salman, does feel more of an affinity for the Palestinian people than his son, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, does. Uh, and the other part is I think that the Saudis still are sort of betting on Donald Trump coming back to power or at least the Trump family exerting a lot of influences, which is why you saw that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund is the single largest investor in Jared Kushner's personal fund, right? Even though the advisors were telling him that Kushner is clueless and doesn't know how to run a fund and neither does his team and that their management fee is excessive, the Saudis are going long on Trump and Trump orbit still. So I think there is a slightly different approach. So you combine it with that and the current U.S. administration's slight hostility to Saudi Arabia, high oil prices now, notwithstanding because of the Ukraine conflict. I think the Saudis are hedging it a little bit more than the UAE, but the UAE has been very clever in recognizing that the best insurance policy for future U.S. administrations and Congress is actually a good relationship with Israel.
0: I'm glad you brought up Israel. What does Israel look like vis-a-vis its space in the world? relative to its relationship or its, I don't want to say faltering, but softening relationship, it seems, with the U.S.? Do you see that going back to a place of, you know, shoulder to shoulder with Israel, a place of strength?
1: I don't. Again, I'm just going to express my personal view. I think that Israelis, I count myself among Israelis, but Israelis and and Jews worldwide make a mistake of forgetting their history. And then in the 50s, in the Suez crisis, that Israel was aligned with the U.K. and France against Nasser and Egypt and thought they could show some aggression towards Egypt. And the U.S. whistled all the sides back and said, there's no way you're going to do anything like that without our consent, which incidentally was the last time that the U.K. decided not to be on the same side of the Middle East conflict as the U.S. And so to think that it's inconceivable that the U.S. would ultimately change its affinity for Israel, that something like that is something to last until the days of days, almost in a religious concept, is simply silly to me. I think that's a relationship that is strong. It have Obviously, Israel has a lot of allies in Congress and administration. It's being taken for granted to some extent. And if you talk to members of the intelligence community in Israel— who have been in that relationship for decades, they will voice their concern to you that that relationship may be squandered. And the U.S. is a changing country. You know that very well yourself. The largest growing minority in the U.S. is a Hispanic minority. Its voting patterns are unclear. They voted much more Republican than they have in the past. Whether that's going to be this unconditional, almost axiomatic, you know, declaration of love for Israel. I don't know if you just saw, just today, Haaretz wrote that, uh, reported that the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper- I saw that. ...for the first time endorsed the BDS movement. Well, you can say that's just Harvard, and that's a few lefty woke universities, but that would be very dangerous. Those are things that five, six years ago would have been unthinkable, even among a university such as Harvard. There are other universities, perhaps, but not Harvard. And so you have to pay attention to these signs because those are shaping leaders of the future. And there is a certain delay, so it may not be next year or two years, from now. But 10 years down the road, it's something that can be maintained, but it has to be actively maintained. And I do believe, just to answer your question completely to end it, I think there was a major shift in, especially on the Democrat side in US politics, when Bibi Netanyahu went and spoke before Congress against a sitting administration, against Obama's administration on the Iran deal, which, by the way, Bibi's own security advisors and his entire intelligence community advised him that that wasn't a good deal to sign. It wasn't a good deal per se, but it was the only deal available. The alternative was no deal, which now, of course, we're looking back and saying it would have been good for the U.S. to stay in the deal. So I think having an Israeli prime minister have the audacity to go and trash talk as sitting president in the U.S. in the U.S.'s capital is something that changed a lot. And you may not hear that publicly, you may not hear it officially, you're not going to hear that kind of talk in elections. But when you talk to people in government and in the military on the U.S. side and National Security Council, when you talk to them over a couple of drinks, and it's an informal conversation and there are no recording devices nearby, you hear something very differently expressed, and it would behoove Israel to pay really close attention to that.
0: Daniel, you have given us so much information and so much Candid inner thoughts, I I have to tell you that as an American, as an Israeli now, and as a Jew, when I go back to America and I talk to just reformed Jews, they are very much not always so supportive of Israel. It's pretty painful to hear that. And I worry, as you point out, that a Hispanic population growing, I mean, unless Israel starts courting the Christian world and bringing them here with missions and so forth. I think it's going to be a pretty tough road ahead for Israel, actually, in the West.
1: You're not going to just get it done with the evangelical right. You have to expand that network much, much broader and wider. These relationships are like aircraft carriers. They really take a long time to adjust to a new current. And unfortunately, Israel doesn't have that luxury of just taking its time doing that. So, you know, this administration was not particularly happy with Israel's stance on the Ukraine and trying to balance that and hedge it vis-a-vis Russia and so on. So this is something that needs to be fed because you're not going to hear it officially. But when you talk behind the scenes to people, you do hear how people really think. And eventually the policy shifts. It's not unthinkable that this will change. Anyone who thinks that's unthinkable is simply putting his or her head in the sand.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, for your foundation, the book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. It's an amazing, suspenseful, horrible story. I really thank you for all your work, and I look forward to speaking with you again on this podcast. Thank you for joining us this week on Finding Inspiration. Hey, I would appreciate it if you would click on that subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. See you next week. I'm Jennifer Weissman.